Amen. And please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we'll be looking at the first nine verses in our next to last sermon in this sermon series. If you're new uh, with us this morning, we have been going through the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, in a series titled Gospel Foundations. And that's what we've been looking for, the gospel in the first 11 verses of the book of Genesis. And I believe we have seen it abundantly each and every week. That has been my prayer, is that the gospel has been clearly shown. And today, that will remain true. From the beginning, if you go back to the sin of Adam and Eve, you go to Genesis 3, when the curse happens, and God deals out His judgment upon the serpent, upon Adam, upon Eve... We get the beginning of two bloodlines. One, the children of God or the righteous ones. These will be those who are faithful and loyal to God. These would be the children of promise. And from that line, one day would come the child who would destroy, once and for all, the serpent and defeat death and undo that curse. From that other line, we would get the children of man or the children of Satan. And these people would be marked by their desire and love of sin unto ultimately their own destruction. They would rebel against God and against God's people. Ultimately, we know that the fulfillment of this passage speaks of Jesus Christ. Jesus being of that bloodline of the children of God. Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, paying for the sins of his brothers and sisters upon the cross, and fulfilling that which was promised many years before. And so we look forward to that. But as we've said along the way, each time we we come to a passage, especially in Genesis, we have to ask, as the people would ask, is the people here, are the ones mentioned today, are they the child of promise? Because each generation would have asked that of their children. Each generation would have looked forward and said, are these the ones to undo that which has been done? And so I invite you to ask that question this morning. The answer will be quickly apparent because what we find in this passage, often called the Tower of Babel, we get a group of people desiring to make themselves great, to make their name known, to see themselves rise above all others and achieve a status designated to God and God alone. And so as we read this morning, I want you to listen to the language used of the people. And also, I want you to listen to the language used in the response of God. And we'll see just how effective their goals are. Would you please follow along with me in your Bibles or in the insert that came alongside your bulletin as we read this morning the Word of God, Genesis chapter 11, 
verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let us once again go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, your word this morning offers a strong warning against trusting in our own might, our own ability, and thinking ourselves great apart from you and trying to achieve the status of God. May we read this passage with great humility. May we see the temptation to sin in our hearts, and may you cleanse it from us. This can only be done through the power of your Holy Spirit, so we ask through your Spirit this morning, O Lord, that you would cleanse us and speak your truth and be with us in this time. We pray all of this. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. If you were here with us last Sunday, you will remember that we read through the genealogy of Noah. And we saw how the sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, spread out and populated the earth with various people groups. Well, here in Genesis 11, we see the event that caused Genesis 10. And that may seem backwards, that may seem out of order. But if you go back just prior to that and read of the cursing of Ham, it's appropriate to see the consequences of that curse. And so the event in 11 gave us what we read in chapter 10, the scattering of all peoples. And all of this is because... The children of man chose to create a tower. And not just any tower. The text is very clear. A tower to reach to the heavens. They wanted to be equal with God. And what does that language take us back to? What does that remind us of if you've been with us for this series? It takes us back to the garden. It takes us back to the promise from the serpent to Adam and Eve. The sin is not changed You can be like God if you but do this thing. This morning, we will consider both the desire to be like God 
and the result of trying to be like God. We find that our text breaks down very cleanly into two sections. First, we see that man's attempt to bring glory to himself ultimately fails. We find that in verses 1 through 4. And then secondly, God's sovereignty over the affairs of man is total and complete. We find that in verses 5 through 9. And so we have man versus God, if you will. The wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. The sovereignty of man versus the sovereignty of God. We have a challenge here. And both groups offer their best and only one will end up prevailing. And this again should take us right back to the garden. That desire and attempt to overthrow God and to overthrow His way and to make a path of our own. And we must be very careful as we study this passage this morning. Because the temptation to act this way is natural to each one of us. We all have the potential to want to bring glory to ourselves at the expense of rightly giving it to God where it belongs. So let us consider our passage carefully, not as people examining what happened to others, but as people humbly saying, oh, but for the grace of God, this would be me. With that in mind, let's begin by looking at man's attempt to glorify himself. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. In our passage, it begins by giving us uh, important pieces of information to fully grasp what's going on. And the first of this is that all people had one language. That is, everyone could communicate with each other. Now, this verse does not denote sin. That was not sinful. That was not bad. That was not wicked. It's not necessarily a terrible thing for people to be able to talk with one another. However, that became the vehicle for sin when the people chose to glorify themselves with it. And this is also important to understand in light of something we saw last week. At one point, everyone on earth was closely related, directly related. They were all cousins. As Jim, Ham, and Japheth had their first and second generations, they all would have been blood relatives. They sh there should have been no barriers between communication and interaction and love with one another. There should not have been any walls of any kind. Think about it. If everyone today spoke the same language, how much easier would it be to get to know one another? How much easier would it be to be more sympathetic and take time to understand each other? This could have been a great blessing. However, it became the very tool of their punishment. The next piece of information that we learn Verse 2 is that the people migrated to the land of Shinar. This will be, by the end of this text, what is known as Babylon. Babylon ought to come to your mind. You ought to perk up at the mention of that because Babylon will be known for rebellion against God, the enslavement of the people of God, and one of the chief creators of false idols. Lots of things to be known for, none of them very good. 
And really what we're reading here is the origin story of these peoples and of this, what will be a great city a little while later in the biblical account, but not for holy purposes. Well, ultimately for holy purposes, but from a worldly standpoint, certainly not. And with the stage set, if you will, we begin to learn about the actions of the peoples who have settled there. And it doesn't take long to realize, to answer that question, remember, are these the children of promise? The answer is very quickly, no, it's not. Verses 3 and verse, specifically verse 4 make that clear to us. Verse 3 tells us a little bit about what they're doing and the folly of it. It says, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This led to them having brick for building material and bitumen or tar for mortar. Their desire is to make a permanent settlement here where there are no stones for building. The people came to an agreement. They spoke with one another. They all are one accord and decide to do this great work. Again, at this point, it's hard to see the sin in that. But hang in there with me. We need to recognize that brick is a difficult process, making brick. And it's not only is it difficult, it's messy. And it takes a great work and a great labor. And it's less ideal than using stone. You would want stone, especially in a a structure of this size and this immensity and of this goal. Further, uh, bitumen is, is equal or roughly equivalent to what we see as tar today. This also is a very difficult process of of purifying this and of refining this so that it can be used. It is quite messy. Um, It is not a, a task that one would desire. And in fact, anytime you, you see road workers and they're paving or repaving roads, I always make the point to say a prayer for them. Um, it has to be extraordinarily hot for them to even do the work. And then the work itself is not pretty and it is quite dangerous. While they're not living under the same conditions in our text, to, to think about those that work today in that manner should give you an idea of just what they're undertaking. All of this points to a great desire, a, a, a almost unmistakable need to be here. We will be here. We will build here. It doesn't matter that we don't have the right material. It doesn't matter that the work is going to be extraordinarily hard. It doesn't matter, well, what God said, and we'll get to that in a moment. All we need to know is we are going to be right here, right now. Again, we, we find ourselves asking, well, where is the sin? Why, why is this wrong? Well, Calvin hints at it in pointing to the ridiculousness of what they're doing. He says this, Difficulty often deters us from necessary work. But these men, when they had neither stone nor mortar, yet do not scruple to attempt the raising of an edifice which may transcend into the clouds, were taught, therefore, by this example to what length the lust of men will hurry them when they indulge into their ambition. 
You see, their need, their drive, their sin caused them to say, we will do this and we will accomplish this. And before we even really get into a clear understanding of why that is sinful, please let us pause and say sin will still do that to us today. Sin will cause silliness in us. And by that I mean we will go out of our way to extreme and extraordinary difficulty to chase after sin. We are masters at making our lives difficult for the sake of our pet sins. We will often ignore sound arguments and reasoning to the point that you may have asked or said this of someone, what would possess them to do such a thing? The answer most often is the lust of sin. This is why sin is so dangerous. This is why we must flee it at all costs. It can quickly ensnare us as we destroy ourselves to have it. This is what we see in the gathering of this building material. We see a drive so intense, so great, that it ignores logic, it ignores reason, and it seeks to accomplish a purpose that, quite honestly, it probably couldn't have done. With those building materials, it probably was not going to be possible to make such a building that they desired. And yet, they continued. And verse 4 really gets at the heart of what's going on here. Verse 4 really speaks to the crux of the matter. We get their words. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Did you hear it? In the, in the pronouns there, it, it reveals the truth of the matter. Let me honor me. Let me glorify me. Let me do this for me. I don't need God. I don't need God's word. I don't need God's way. I don't need God's plan. I want this for me. That's what's being said here. This is their goal. This is their ultimate desire. And in some ways, you could read this as a challenge to God. All right, God, we're going to do this. And this will be our namesake. This will be our identifying marker. This tower will speak to people. As they look to the skies and they see this great tower, they will think how great are the people of this land. The sin here is in their rationale. I love how James Montgomery Boyce puts it in his commentary. The important point is that it's not God's city. There's nothing wrong with building cities. In fact, God will command people to. It's not that it's God's city as Jerusalem was. It's that it was man's city. A secular city. As such, it was constructed by man for man's glory. It's a desire to be independent from God. The inhabitants want to make a path for themselves, rejecting God's plan and God's purpose. They seek to overthrow him. Now we see that for the ridiculousness that it is. But they truly believed they could accomplish this task. They thought it was something in their ability. In their power to do. As do many today. Who seek to divide God with their lives and with their actions. 
And the question you may have, and it's appropriate to ask of the text at this point still, is why? Why such a desire to not be dispersed? Why such a defiant, this will be what it will be? This is how it's going to happen. Why was this a fear of theirs? And answer this, and this is really where we see the folly of what they're doing and the danger of it. We have to go all the way back to Genesis 1.28. God's promise to Adam and to Eve. God's, not only His promise, His command. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Again, this promise is re-given to Noah. Remember, the, the covenant made with Noah really is a reconfirmation of the covenant made with Adam and Eve. Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here we have it. Now we understand the sin, don't we? The explicit command by God is to multiply and spread. To fill the earth. And they're saying, no. I will not and you cannot make me. I will build a tower in defiance to you. I will show you that I'm in control. I will show you that I have the power. We will quickly surmise in our passage, um, even as we get to verse 5, that they don't succeed. Man's attempt to bring glory to himself will ultimately lead to his downfall and reveal his foolishness. You know, one of my favorite sayings from my childhood when asked if you want to do something later in the week, the appropriate response is, well, if the good Lord's willing and the creek don't rise, I'll be there. Which is simply, actually, it's a really brilliant way of saying something that James said. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. The Bible warns us of trusting in our own ways and setting our own path. Instead, we should seek the Lord's counsel and say, if God wills it, then it will be so. If God allows this, then it will happen. For God's counsel will not be defeated and will ultimately prove to be the best course of action. And when we align ourselves to that will, we're blessed. And as we're walking in His will, we see that which is set out before us succeed. We see, as we become more and more like God in our thoughts and our prayers and our actions, sanctification, that that which we desire comes true. Because what we desire is what God desires, not what our own hearts want. But that's not what's happening here. And ultimately, it leads to their downfall. And we see that most clearly as we move to our second section of the text. Um, in part one, we've seen man's attempt at glory, man's attempt at honor, man's attempt at lifting himself up. And in part two, God responds. And God's word, God's will, God's sovereignty is brought to the test. The challenger, man, has given his best. He has made his attempt and now God will respond. Look with me at our second section to see this. And as we begin this, it's important to remember the goal here. The goal of man is to make a name for himself by reaching the level of God. They wanted the tower to go into the heavens, into the clouds. They wanted to be on equal status with God. You can, you can read that into the text. 
And what we get from here forward, it, um, one, it reveals to us God has a sense of humor. You're going to get divine irony throughout the rest of this passage. And you need to read it that way. It, it, it's almost comedic, if not for its seriousness. But it doesn't lose its comedic value. Here's what I mean. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. One commentator says it best by saying this. One could say that no matter how high they towered, the Lord had to descend to even see it. Not only does this strike a note of satire, but it declares the tower would never reach the heavens and instead fell far short. Picture this, if you will. God having to stoop down, to get down, if you will, to look and find the tower which is supposed to achieve up to him. That's the imagery we have here. God having to, to bend himself. God having to submit himself down to go, oh, there it is. I see what we're talking about here. Isaiah beautifully captures this for us in Isaiah 55. Very similar language. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. It's simply arrogance to believe we can reach God on our own efforts. Yet if you will allow me just a moment, there's a, a vital lesson right here, right now, that has to do with salvation. Lest the Lord bow himself and come down, you will not be saved. You cannot resurrect a tower to get yourself there. You cannot work yourself to heaven. You cannot accomplish a work great enough that you will be on the equal level of God. It is only by Christ choosing to lower himself, as God's word says, for a time lower than the angels, and taking on our humanity that we can have forgiveness. May we not forget the importance of God stepping down to see the affairs of man and what a great act of mercy it is on his behalf and on his part. That's not what's happening in our text necessarily, but it is a good reminder for us today, and so I, I encourage you to think along those lines. God sees their efforts, he sees their tower and their work, and then he speaks. And in the book of Genesis, we have to remember every time when God speaks, it happens quite literally um, in the creation accounts. And then from there forward in his promises and in his declarations. And this is what God speaks. We find it in verses 6 and 7. Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now you may hear that and say, well, what does he mean that nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them? You just said that they couldn't build a tower to heaven and now you're saying, or even worse, God is saying that they could accomplish it. I don't believe that's the right interpretation of this passage. Rather, Several commentators state, the people have to be restrained from sin because there's no sin that they will not accomplish. Their unity in name and in number 
Their unity in language can only lead again to great sin. And this is coming on on the heels of the flood. When all people had all things in common, including their sin, and their sin became so great that God wiped out the earth. There has been a devolving of mankind, if you will, to the degree that they know the commands of God. They would have heard them. They would have been spoken to them by their ancestor, by Noah. And yet they freely and willfully disobey. There is nothing left to limit them, to restrict them in their ability to sin collectively. That's what it means when it says there's nothing left impossible for them. Mankind was dangerous to itself by being one people with one language. And it's for that reason that the Lord did what he did. We hear of the response or the action taken in light of his declaration. Remember, God speaks, action happens. We've got the speech, here's the action. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And notice what God did. God did two things here. One, he dispersed them over the face of the earth. And two, he confused the language of the peoples. This may sound like a a, a harsh punishment and an overreaction. Unless you see it, not only as an act of judgment, but also an act of mercy. You have to read the mercy into this. Mankind was so dangerous in his sin that he was able to commit it without remorse and do so collectively. So the Lord spread mankind to reduce their ability to collectively commit sin. Also, by spreading them over the face of the earth, God is fulfilling his own mandate to mankind. You will be fruitful and multiply. You will spread across the earth and you will subdue it. Well, God had to strike them to scatter them to fulfill his own words. Therefore, confirming his words, his promise to mankind, and in some ways protecting them from great collective acts of sin. Make no mistake, this is an act of judgment, but it is also most assuredly an act of mercy by God. Man wanted to remain one and wanted to remain together. God said, this will not be so. Now, we don't know how they were dispersed, but we know they were. And this is the difference in the plans of man and the plans of God. We read in those final verses that the tower, that the city was left undone. It was not finished. Their great effort, their great work, their great attempt was interrupted. It was failed. It um, did not do that which they wanted it to do. God, on the other hand, he speaks, I will do this. And then the very next verses we read is, and God did what he said. That's man attempting to glorify himself versus God declaring it and it being so. When God acts, it is complete. And there's one final act of irony in our passage that we don't want to overlook. One of their desires, one of their goals in all of this is to make a name for themselves. They wanted an identity. Now, they wanted to be the ones to create it. They wanted it to be about them and from them. However, they are given the name Babel, this place. Because this is where God confused the languages and scattered the people. 
However, while they sought to give a name to themselves, to honor and glorify themselves, this will not be a name that's looked on with praise and honor. All we have to do to realize this is think about all the times that Israel went to Babylon. Was it a vacation? No, it most certainly was not. In fact, Babylon will be a place of God's judgment against God's people. And so Babylon will be an instrument of judgment that itself will be judged. It will be a place where God pours out his wrath and brings his people back to himself. And that's important too. Even as we talked about this last week, the scattering of the peoples, well, what does Jesus say? When one is lost, what do you do? You leave the 99. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. And so while this is a scattering, while this is a spreading out of all of the peoples, while they sought to make a name for themselves and they didn't achieve in their goal, they're not ultimately lost. There will be peoples from these nations who ultimately come to know God as Lord and as a Savior. God is not forgetting them. And so in some ways, they did make a name for themselves, a name with God, those who would trust in Him by faith. And so what should we take away from this passage this morning? We as, as New Testament Christians, we who live in a time when great acts seem far simpler, less magical, if you will. If we wanted to build a tower that stretched into the clouds, we could do so. If you had enough money, you can pay someone else to do it. You don't even have to do the work. You can think about a lot of the great acts that we have accomplished. The Hoover Dam comes to mind. Many of our towers, many of our bridges, many great things, things that could not even be imagined by the people of the Bible. So should we just look away at that and say, well, God kind of struck people for that before. Mm, probably not the smartest thing to do. Should we read this passage and say, okay, God, you're saying I should only know my language and I shouldn't interact with anyone else and it's really dangerous if we all get together and try to be with one another? No, that's not the case at all. What we should look at this passage and conclude is we should be very careful in making our plans. We need, we must check our hearts. Am I doing this to glorify myself? Am I seeking my honor and my name in this when building this landmark, when creating this monument, when doing this great work? We should check our hearts and ask God, God, give me humility in what I'm doing. God, don't let this honor me. Let this honor you. Let this make your name known, not mine. Secondly, we need to trust God alone for our salvation and our identity. Mankind gets in trouble all throughout Scripture when they try to make a name for themselves. Contrary to that, Paul in Galatians, Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how we're to live. To deny ourself 
and instead glorify God and cling to Him and celebrate Him and lift Him up, not us. We must desire the identity of Christ and reject any identity of this world. We need to seek God in His Word. Notice how Paul lowers himself, one who is much to be praised for his great works. And by doing so, we will receive fulfillment and joy and peace. That which these people desired, that which they most assuredly wanted in this building of a city, a place of comfort and of a sense of home, you will find in Christ. And we won't need a tower built to the heavens to declare who we are, for you will have his name and his identity and his blood poured upon you. And by that, you will be known by the Father. And there's no greater one that you can be known by, no greater identity than you, that you can have, no greater treasure can you possess now or for all eternity than to be known by God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us as we come to passages of Scripture such as this where there are warnings and where there are shortcomings. Please help us not to look at this as outsiders saying, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not like them. But Lord, as we come to passages such as this, help us to bow our heads and bow our hearts and again just with humility say, but for the grace of God, that would be me. I pray that we don't trust in ourselves, but we trust fully and completely in you, in your word, and in your works. May we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And may that be enough. We thank you for this day, and we thank you for this word. Be with us now as we continue in our time of worship and preparation for the table. In Christ's name, amen.